How's everybody doing? It's good to see you. Hey, uh, when I was in college, there was a series of books that we had to read that were outside of the normal classes. So we had all of our normal reading for each, uh, each class. But then there was a group of nine books that we had to read. And it was like, read them whenever you want, but you can't graduate without reading uh, all nine. And so I, being the student that I am, I read the short ones first and left the long ones for the end. And, and I left the longest one, which was um, a book by the name of uh, The Pilgrim's Progress, which is, by the way, the second best-selling book in, um, in, in history, uh, the Bible being the first, The Pilgrim's Progress being the second. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a great book, by the way. Um, I've since read it, and you'll know what I mean when I tell you this story. Um, so I was in my last semester, and I still had, I'd read eight of the nine. I still hadn't read Pilgrim's Progress. So I went to the Christian bookstore that was not too far, and, and I decided just like, all right, I'm going to have to bite the bullet here and just buy the book. So I found the book. And I had it in my hand. It's like 400, 450 pages, something like that. I'm walking around. And then I, 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 I kind of walk through it. On the end cap of the children's section, I see this. It says Pilgrim's Progress Children's Edition. And I think, let me, let me look. So I look at it, right? And it's 100 pages long. Right? It's, it's like for fourth and fifth graders. But here's the thing. It's 100 pages long, but every other page is a picture. So it's really only 50 pages of reading. Oh, and by the way, it's about 30 font, uh, like the type size. So it's only like four lines per page. And then if you, even if you couldn't understand those four lines, they had a picture of what was happening uh, on the other side. So I said, do I buy the real one or do I buy the children's one? Is this really that important? I can have this book read in 10 minutes. You know, uh, am I dishonoring God in some way by not reading the long version? I wouldn't be if I was in the fourth grade. Short, uh, anyway, so I decided to buy the short version. I read the book in 10 minutes, wrote the report in 20 minutes, and turned it in. About a week later, I get called into the office, because that's just the way things like this work, especially when you're pursuing a theology degree. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so I, I get into the office, and uh, they're like, hey, we heard that you, uh, you read the children's version. And I'm like, well, where'd you hear that from? They're like, well, we heard it from everybody, because you've been telling everybody. Like, oh, yeah, that's true. And... Uh, so I said, well, you know, the truth is, you never specified. And so the dean of the school, you know, the administrator of school was like, well, that's true. So, and now after me, they actually specified, like they gave the ISBN number of like the kind, the, the, like this is the, this is the cover, how would it look? Anyway, so they changed it. So I made this whole stink about how you didn't tell me which version of the book to buy. So I just, I bought the ver- version that kind of most suited me. And, uh, you know, Jesus said you must come to him like a child. So... <laughs> Um, to which she responded, uh, the administrator of the college responded, Bob, stay on this track and you will end up an evil genius. To much I responded, whoa, as I walked out. And um, now the reason I tell you that story is because one of the books that I read, one of the nine, uh, is a book that really changed my life. Um, and it's a book that I've come back to um, over and over again. Every couple of years I read it. It's by a guy named A.W. Tozer. Uh, A.W. Tozer was a pastor in Chicago and um, just an absolutely brilliant writer and thinker. But in one of his books, um, I read several of his books, but um, one of his books, it's called The Knowledge of the Holy. Um, he poses a question that I think is probably one of the most important questions you could ever ask yourself. And the question is this. The question is, um, what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Why don't you think about that statement? Let me say it again. What you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. 
You see, the reason that I bring this up is because we're in this series called Ten Words as we go through the Ten Commandments. And if you weren't with us last week when we kind of defined that, we, we talked about how the, the ancient rabbis uh, from centuries ago, from generations ago, they didn't call the Ten Commandments the Ten Commandments. Instead, the Hebrew rabbis, they called them the Ten Words. Because what the idea was, they weren't simply rules, even though they, they had that element in them. But instead, they, they weren't simply rules. What they were, were words that were supposed to speak life and vitality and freedom into our lives. And so, as God is giving us this and showing us, if you, if you follow this, if you live by these ten words, you will experience the best life possible. But then what He does is this. He begins by talking to us in the first commandment about who to worship and how to worship. So he talks to us about who to worship because the quality of our lives is determined by who we decide to worship. And let me be honest, sometimes we think that we think we're under the impression that we're worshiping God, but it's not really God. It's a counterfeit God that we've created, a God of our own imaginations. And listen, the counterfeit gods that we create can keep us from knowing the real God, from growing in our relationship with God, and from living the life that God created us to live. So what we're going to do this morning, if you have your Bible, I want you to open it. Uh, we're going to start in the book of Daniel chapter 2. We're going to go in three different places today. I'm going to tell you, <coughs> pardon me, I'm going to tell you three stories. Two from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, that are going to explain this one verse. The first commandment in, in Exodus chapter 20 verse 3 that says, You shall have no other gods before me. Or in other translations, you no other gods besides me. So I hope that you have the outline that we gave you, the pen that we gave you, because you're going to be writing a bunch of stuff, and it's going to be very important. Because what these three stories do is that they show not that these guys were actually not worshiping the true God, but worshiping a counterfeit God. And what happened was this, is that we reveal now how the counterfeit God appears and how God is there ready to set them free if, and this is the big F, if they want to be free. So let me set up story number one for you if I can. There's a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. Those of you that are having kids, you may want to think about that name. Nebuchadnezzar. All right? So Nebuchadnezzar is the king of an empire called Babylon. <coughs> Pardon me. Babylon has conquered Israel and taken many of the Israelites back to Babylon. Well, one night Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And he has no idea what it means. So what he does is this. He calls together all of his advisors. These are the magicians, the wise men, the soothsayers, um, you know, all of the, the guys who are like, you know, his legal counsel. He gets everybody together, all the wise men. And he says, guys, I've had a dream and I don't know what it means. And they say to him, they say, well, king, tell us what, tell us the dream and we'll explain to you what it means. And he says, nah, it's a little too easy. How about this? How about you tell me what I, the dream that I had and then you will tell me what it means. And they say, well, you're asking something that no king in the history of anything has ever asked for. And he says, well, let me give you a little bit more of a little more motivation. If you don't tell me what dream I had by tomorrow uh, and you don't tell me what the dream means, then I'm going to kill you. Oh, and I'm also going to kill your family and I'm also going to turn your house into a dung heap. Um, and so it's like your, your home's going to be turned into the dump because you know your neighbors are going to appreciate that. But it's, you're not going to have to worry about it because you and your family are going to get wiped out. Okay, meeting adjourned. So they had the evening. They had to come up the next day and figure out what it is that's going to happen. Well, Daniel hears about all of this. He goes into the king. And he says, uh, king, we don't have 
the interpretation for you, but here's the thing, is that God is the one, the real God, the true God. He's the one that gives the real interpretation. He's the one that gives dreams, and he's the one that gives the meaning of the dreams. And so he then tells the king what he dreamt. This is where we're going to begin in Daniel chapter 2, verse 31. This is what it says. It says, You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. The, the image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a, so, a stone was struck, uh, cut without hands, and it struck the image and its feet of iron and clay and broke it to pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were crushed together, and they became like chaff from the summer threshing floors which the wind carries away, and no trace of them is found. The stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the entire earth. This is the dream. And now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. If you pause there and give me your attention, here's the first question that we have to answer in in, in reference to this first commandment. Ready? (coughs) First question. Do you worship God or your identity? Do you worship God or your identity? Here's what I mean by that. A few years ago, my wife and I are at Publix, and we're getting a few groceries. We get to the front, and we go to pay. It's 43 bucks, right? And uh, I swipe my debit card, and it says declined. Now, my wife and I are not wealthy, but we're, we are usually able to cover $43 of groceries. And, uh, and, and so I'm like, oh, that's weird. So I um, you know, pay for the groceries another way, and then I call my bank, and they say that my account is overdrawn. And I'm like, well, how is that possible? So then the person at the bank says to me, uh, Mr. Frank, was you recently in Las Vegas? And I said, uh, I've actually, no, and I've never even been to Nevada. And uh, so they said, well, because according to our records, you stayed at Caesar's Palace last night. And I said, Caesar's Palace? I haven't even had a Caesar salad recently. And, uh, and they said, and so then they noticed that I had used my card the, that same day that I was in Caesar's Palace to fill up my car with gas. And they're like, well, you can't really be in two places at once. So then, that's when I, this is years ago, and I learned about this brand new term called identity theft. And uh, that was, you know, you can just imagine how much fun that was. Um, but here's the thing. Somebody pretending to be me on vacation. Now, I have this rule. If I'm going to pay for a vacation, I need to be on it. That's a simple rule, but it's one that I have. Um, but here's the thing, and I, I want to give you like a, maybe a little different twist on this idea of identity theft, is that sometimes we do it to ourselves. And what I mean by that is this, is that some people trade the identity given to them by God, and they trade it in for something much less. They trade it for a position or a title, and then that position or title that they're given becomes who they are. It becomes their God. Now let me just tell you, this is a little more personal, but um, in a, I remember a tough season in my life. This is years ago. Um, I, I was in a band, and our band had a, um, had a record deal. Our first album had come out and done very well. And so we were writing songs for our next album that was going to come out. And um, we're going to get ready. We're about halfway done writing, and so we're going to start recording soon. But I felt God calling me into ministry. And so I said, I, I think I need to leave. Uh, to, uh, I was getting engaged, and, and then uh, I, I felt like God maybe wanted me to start doing something with more speaking than, than music. And so I said, I think I need to go and get a theology degree. And, and so, that, so I decided I left the band. And, um, and it was fine, you know. We left amicably and all that, and um, the band continued, and I, I was a full-time student, and, and it was this weird thing that happened. It was a, it was a, I, I, I didn't notice it at first, but it, it was like a month later, 
See, when you're in a band that's like fairly popular, right, and you've sold a bunch of records, um, like when you play a show, people want you to autograph your album. People want to take pictures with you. When you're a full-time student, um, there's like nobody that wants to take a picture of you with you. You know, there's, there's, um, there's nobody that wants you to autograph, like, you know, um, their schedule, right? And it's like, I don't know if you've said, what do you do? I'm a full-time student. Dude, can I take a picture with you? you know, and you're like, that doesn't happen. Um, so, and it was like this weird thing, and I realized that I wasn't a professional musician anymore. I was just a student. And, and, I, and I'm telling you that it was like this really hard lesson I had to learn for myself because I didn't even realize how much of my identity was being a musician, and, and, and the, the interesting part was this, is that not only was, that, was I a musician, but um, it became part of who I am. And then when I didn't have that anymore, let me tell you something, ungluing that from my identity was a lot harder than I thought. Because I thought, well, you know what? I'm a child of God. I'm loved by Him. That's my identity. But in reality, in reality, there was partially this counterfeit God that I had created, which was what other people thought of me, what other people's liking of what I did and, and all of that. And I'm telling you, it's a false God that can never get enough. Listen, if, 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 if you're a person who like lives for the approval of others, um, that's a tough idol to give up. It's a tough idol to give up, but you have to give it up if you want to be free. If not, you'll spend your entire life as a slave of what other people think of you. Now, why do I bring that up? Back to our story. Um, Daniel gives Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation of the dream. And here's what he tells him. That head of gold in that statue represents you, Nebuchadnezzar, this kingdom of Babylon that you oversee. But there is coming another kingdom, the arms and the chest of silver. It's the two arms, the, Medo, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Medes and the Persians. Then there's this midsection of bronze that represents Alexander the Great and the Grecian Empire that would come later. And then there were the two legs of iron, that is, this, this iron brutality that was the Roman Empire. And then after the feet with the toes of clay and, and, um, and iron that, that, were, uh, that are partially strong and partially weak that talk about a revived Roman Empire that we'll talk about some other time. But here's the thing. So why does God give Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, that dream at that time? Why does He give him that picture? Because the point of the dream, the interpretation of the dream was, you are not going to be king forever. You're the most powerful man in the world right now. But that designation and that position is temporary. You see, no matter what position we enjoy, whatever title we enjoy, listen, all of it is temporary. Listen, one of my favorite things in the world is being a dad. My wife and I were married 10 years before um, my daughter Mia was born. We have an eight, almost nine-month-old son named Alexander. And being a dad is like the greatest thing ever. But listen, here's the, here's the thing. Um, it, it can't be our identity. Our identity can't be that we're a dad. I know that you're always a parent and all that, but here, here's the thing. And this is important for parents to know. This is so important for us. Now check it out. The thing that's important for us to note is that if my identity is being a dad, right? If, if, if your identity is being a mom, then eventually those kids grow up and they move away. And here's what will happen. We will resent them for growing up and moving away. Not because they grew up and moved away because that's what we did, because that's the way life goes, but because our identity was wrapped up in being their parent. And when they went on and began their life, now something about us was lost because we had our identity wrapped up in them. 
You see, when your identity is your career, you will forsake everything else for the sake of your career. And everything will, be beca- will be, become about the title that you have, the position that you enjoy, the level of influence and authority and power that you're able to wield in the, the sphere that you, of influence that you have. And what will happen is, is that you will neglect everything else. Even the things that you say are more important than career, you will neglect. You say, well, my family's more important. My wife is more important. God is more important. We will neglect all of that because, listen, if you worship a God, especially a counterfeit God, it will exact everything from you. And so you say, well, I, I've, got, I've got to go in. I've got to work. I, I've got to put in uh, these, the insane hours. And sometimes it's not even because we're being asked to. It's because that's where I, our identity is. And if we don't, listen, and if we don't do it, then a piece of us gets lost. And that's why the question is, when God says, have no other gods before me, do we worship God or do we worship our identity. Nebuchadnezzar's identity was this. His identity was the fact that he was the king. He wasn't just Nebuchadnezzar. He was King Nebuchadnezzar. And that's why the dream troubled him. And he, he, gets, the, he gets the dream and the interpretation, which you can imagine, someone has a dream and, you t- and someone comes up to you and says, this was your dream and this is what it means. And he's blown away and he says, this is the end of chapter 2 of Daniel, he says, there is no other God like your God. That your God is the true God. But here's the thing that's fascinating, and we're not going to look there. Maybe you'll look at it later. In Daniel chapter 3, you know what he does? He builds a statue of all gold and tells people to worship that. Why? Because why would he build a statue of all gold? Because he's saying, I know what God said, but my kingdom is never going to expire. My influence will never go away. My authority will never cease. I am going to live forever, whether I'm here or whether it's what I create that lives forever. And he tells everybody to worship it. Why? Because it's what he's already been doing. That's his God. And through an amazing series of circumstances, God humbles him. And you know what happens? He's okay for a little while. And then he's walking through his garden. And he looks around and he says, look at this great Babylon that I have created. In chapter 4. And uh, someone from heaven comes to him. And he says, the watchers have been watching. Walk softly, because the next time that pride fills your heart, God is going to humble you. Well, check out your notes. Look at what happens. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 4. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is this not the great Babylon I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken away from you. You'll be driven away from people and, and uh, will live in the, with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass over you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone He wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle's and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, this is Nebuchadnezzar telling the story. I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven. My sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. 
And now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the God of heaven because everything he does is right and all of his ways are just and all those who walk in pride he is able to humble. If you pause there, listen, here's the deal. Um, if you have a talent or a, some sort of position or influence, um, it is so easy to allow that to become your God. How do you know if it's your God? Listen, real simple, here's the test. What would you do if it was taken away? See, if it was taken away, I wouldn't know who I was. Then maybe right there we have the beginnings of the counterfeit God. If you say, well, that's my identity, that's who I am. And our identity is not in the person of Jesus Christ who saved us. Then that's where there's a problem. That we have been enslaved by some other God. Here's, here's what the Bible says in Colossians chapter, two, or chapter 3. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears. By the way, note that. When Christ who is your life appears then you will also appear with him in glory. Nebuchadnezzar was set free. He was set free when he stopped worshiping his identity and his position. And he embraced the true living God. And here's the thing that he found that he had been looking for all along. He found significance. He found meaning. And he found life. Story number two. Story number two is an interesting one. Jesus is teaching and wildly popular. And as he's doing some teaching and wildly popular, he comes to a city called Jericho. And there's this guy who is this notorious um, villain in the city. Well, let me read you the story. Here's how it begins. <clears throat> then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was. But could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. And so he ran ahead and climbed up into the sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And so he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. And so Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my possessions, half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. If you pause there and give me your attention, here's the second point. And that is, do you worship God or worship control? Do you worship God or do you worship control? Now, here's, here's what I mean by that. Uh, can I ask this question? How many of you like roller coasters? All right. Here, this is the group of people I'll be praying for this week. Um, all right. <coughs> now, pardon me. Um, now, here's the thing. I hate roller coasters for several reasons. One is, is that uh, every time I go on one, I have this interesting sensation to vomit. Um, but the other is, is that I don't really like to get into... Uh, being on a ride that I know was built by the lowest bidder with the cheapest materials is not what I call fun. Um, but anyway, the reason I bring that up is because my mom has this picture in her house of my wife Carrie and I on Splash Mountain. And you know how you go down the big drop in Splash Mountain and they take a picture and then they charge you like 80 bucks for the print, right? That one? Um, 
Well, it's the oddest picture, because here's what the picture is. It's, it's us, and we're, Carrie and I are in the front row, right? And this is my wife. She's like this. Happy as can be. Here's me. And I'm like holding on to that bar for dear life. Now, here's the weird part. Um, like, what does holding on to that bar actually do? Do you know that there's never been like an accident on a roller coaster where it says, you know, 20 dead in a roller coaster, but one man holding onto the bar saved himself. No, it's never happened, right? It's like, that guy is as dead as the rest of them. And it's just, just the way it is. But here's what we do. We hold onto the bar, and listen, here's what we think. We hold onto the bar thinking that somehow if I hold it tight enough, somehow I'm steering this thing. Like, you know, okay, I'm going to let it go down. That's really what I want. No, and here's what it is. Holding onto the bar, and many of us do it, listen, it gives us the illusion of control. And I'm telling you that a roller coaster is like a metaphor for life. You can either let go of the bar and just realize that God has you on a ride and you can enjoy the ride and recognize that you're not in control. Or you can try to hold onto that bar as tightly as you can and try to give yourself the illusion that you're in control and that the way this thing is going is what you had planned all along. You see, the reason why many people worship wealth and worship money, and by the way, when I say people worship wealth, that's not just people who have it. Even people who don't have it can worship wealth and worship money and and all of that. And many people say, well, they don't. Um, But the reason that many people do worship wealth and worship money is because it gives them the illusion of control. You see, and and I think sometimes we think we don't worship money because, and here's the reason, we have a wrong idea as to what money is. Like, I, I, when we talk about worship, we're not talking about, like, you light a candle, you bow down, you pray to it, right? I don't, anyone says, I have a $20 bill that I pray to, you know, no, I guess you don't have that, right? You probably don't. But, but, but here's the thing. But here, what worship really is, is that worshiping something is trusting in it above all else. Here's what the Bible says in Psalm 115. It says, our God is in heaven, he does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but they cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats, and those who make them will be like them. And so also will those who trust in them. O house of Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. Zacchaeus' God was money. So much so that he was willing to sell out his own people to get more of the God that he worshipped. You see, tax collectors in the first century were hated, unlike the warm feelings that we get about our local IRS agents now. And I know that now with tax season coming around, like when I just say the words IRS, like your heart is filled with warm and fuzzy feelings. Um, But back then, they didn't have the delight that we have with our local tax collectors. Uh, Tax collectors were hated. And the reason that they were hated was, was this is that they didn't even lay out their cards out on the table as to how much they were going to take. You see, the way that tax collecting worked in the first century was that Rome, the empire that was ruling and reigning the entire, uh, this, this entire empire, which Israel was part of, what they would do is, is that the tax collector of a local province or community would have a certain number that only he and Rome knew, right? So he would have this number, and they'd say, we want you to collect this much. But then the way, and they didn't get actually, they did not get paid by Rome. Instead, what happened was is that they were told, this is how much we want, but you can collect as much as you want. And so what happened is is that um, they would say, maybe we want, you know, this X amount, but he could just, he could get double that, triple that, quadruple that, and all the rest would be his income. And so you can imagine, 
He would talk about how Rome was going to come in and destroy the community if people didn't pay up the taxes because Rome wants so much and I'm not really making that much. It's Rome who wants it. And what would happen is, is that he was cheating his own... Zacchaeus was cheating his own people and working for the enemy. You see, this is the thing. And he wasn't just a run-of-the-mill tax collector in the verses that we read. It says that he was a chief tax collector. This guy was like a supervisor of tax collectors. And he was incredibly... incredibly wealthy. But something happened in his life, and we know it from a couple of hints that we get in the verses. The God that he worshipped, the God of money, which he thought was creating control in his life, wasn't working out for him. In fact, we can even see from these verses that he's a little bit desperate to find something that satisfies. How do we know that? Because the Bible says a couple of things. It says that he ran ahead. First of all, in that culture, for a grown man to run in public was a sign of disdain. I mean, it was something that you never did. It was, it was, you'd be the object of ridicule. And then he does something even worse than run. It says that he climbed up a sycamore tree. Now, it says that uh, Zacchaeus was a short guy. And so because he couldn't see Jesus, he ran ahead of everybody else already. Like, what are you doing? And then he climbed up a tree, which would have made him the, the butt end of a joke forever. But this is how desperate he was. He didn't care what others thought. He didn't care if others ridiculed him or maligned him or made fun of him or made jokes about him. He was desperate to see Jesus. And that's why Jesus turns to him and he says, hey, guess what? I'm going to come to your house tonight. For a teacher, a rabbi, to say I'm going to come to your house was a tremendous honor. And one that being the kind of sinner that he was, the kind of outcast that he was socially speaking, is, that is an honor that he had probably never enjoyed in his entire life. And so after hearing Jesus, he says to Jesus, uh, I'm going to give half of my goods away to the poor. And by the way, if I have defrauded anyone, which, by the way, he had defrauded everyone. Because that's how he made his living. He had defrauded everybody. That's how he was as wealthy as he was. But he says, I'm giving away half of what I, what I have to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone, I'm going to give them four times what, I, what I've taken. I want you to think about that. It's amazing to me because here's the thing. The, Mosaic, the, the law of Moses states that if you steal something from someone, all you were required to do was give it back plus 20%. So you steal 100 bucks from somebody, you've got to give them back the 100 plus another 20. <coughs> Pardon me. <clears throat> so now he says, no, I'm not going to give back 20%. I'm going to give back 300% plus what I had taken from them. You see, Zacchaeus understood something. That greed is idolatry. That greed is worshiping another god. Ephesians chapter 5, it's in your notes, it says this. It says, for this you can be sure, that no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Listen, the issue isn't so much money. The issue is one of control and worship. Because here's the thing. Here's the thing is um, that money or wealth isn't bad. Like, there's a lot of people in the Bible that were wealthy, that were very godly. You know, Solomon was one, Job was another, Abraham was, was another. But, see, because, because money is, like, is, is an inanimate object, right? If you hold a dollar in your hand, you're like, this is the most evil thing, right? And because people misquote the verse, and they say, you know, money is the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible says. It says it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. And the, the reason it becomes a problem is because it so easily can become an idol because it's easy to trust in, in it above all else. 
The Apostle Paul would say this in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. But people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. You see, according to these verses, it's not wealth that's a sin. It's trusting in it over trusting God that sin and reveals the God that we worship. That's why the cure for greed is generosity. When we decide that we're going to take what we have and give it to someone else, here's what we do. We give away a little bit of the greed. We give away a little bit of the part to control. And that's what Zacchaeus did. Not based on just what the law said, but based on what the gospel demands. <clears throat> that it was bigger than just, well, here's, here's the minimum that, that the law stated. He said, no, I'm going to do more than that because that's what the gospel requires. Here's what Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, just as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. You see, that's why giving is a test of faith, because it causes us to confront who God, who our God really is, and who we really trust, and who we really believe is in control. Zacchaeus had a real encounter with the real God, and you know what he found? Freedom. Because that's what these ten words were all about. When he says, have no other gods before me, instead of having a God that would enslave him, he had a God that no longer controlled him as he put his trust in the true and living God and served him. And then he found this thing called freedom. Story number three. It's a guy, if you turn with me to the book of Jonah, chapter four, uh, there's this guy by the name of Jonah who's a prophet. Well, let me read you the story and then I'll give you the commentary. Check out what he says in Jonah chapter four. <clears throat> but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he became angry. And so he prayed to the Lord and he said, Ah, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I previously fled to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents in doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? And so Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east of the city. And there he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade to see what might become of the city. And so Jonah, the Lord God planted a plant and made it cover Jonah. And it made a shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. And so Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as the, dawn, as the morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm. And it destroyed the plant and it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And then he said, and then he wished death for himself and said, it is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, it is, right, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, it is right for me to be angry even to death. 
And the Lord said, you have had pity on a plant for which you did not labor or make grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock? Now, here's the third one, third question we have to ask. Do you worship God or personal preference? Here's what I mean. This little exchange that we read between God and Jonah shouldn't even be in the Bible. Now, here's what I mean by that. What I mean by that is, <coughs> is that God was going to judge Nineveh. Nineveh was an incredibly wicked city, and so God sends Jonah to go to Nineveh to preach to them. But here's what he, here's what he does. I want you to imagine, um, if you kind of have a good geography of the world, um, in Nineveh, or, uh, which is part of the Assyrian Empire, was as far east as you could go from where Israel stood. So the Bible says this, that Jonah got, went down to a city called Joppa in Israel and, went and decided to go to Tarshish, uh, which many believe is ancient, uh, an ancient name for England, and, um, which, by the way, was as far west as you could go. So God says, I want you to go east. He takes the boat going west. And it's like, well, why is he a prophet of God outright disobeying God and going in the other direction? Now, through an amazing series of circumstances, God gets him back. Him being over, a storm comes. They throw him off the boat that he's on. He gets swallowed by a fish. The fish shows up in Nineveh and barfs him onto the beach, which I'm, I would want, I'm dying to see that on Blu-ray when I get to heaven. I want to just, I just want to see the, anyway, him coming out. And, um, and so then he gets to Nineveh and preaches the shortest sermon in history. Now, some of you are thinking, I, I think I'd like to hear, have heard that one, because uh, it's like one sentence long. In fact, it's in your notes. Listen to what it says. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. This is when he's in Nineveh. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. And on the first day, Jonah started in the city and he proclaimed, this is the sermon, 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. End of sermon. Let's pray. That's it, right? And the Ninevites, this is the response, and the Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. You see, that's where the book of Jonah should end. The, Jonah shows up, there's this amazing revival that breaks out, Every, these incredibly wicked people turn to God, they turn away from their idols, they turn away from their br brutal ways, and they embrace God through the preaching of Jonah, and then they recognize God's grace and mercy on a city that had been wicked, and now what happens? Now what happens is we get chapter 4. Jonah's mad. I mean, he's piping mad. He's so mad that he says, God, I would like you to kill me now. I don't know if you've ever asked God to do that, but I mean, you've got to be like, you know, like kind of mad to do that. Like, so here's the question. Why is Jonah so upset? He hated the Ninevites. He hated the Assyrians because the Assyrians had conquered Israel. And the Assyrians were such a brutal people. You have to understand that ancient texts tell us Ancient records, the history books tell us that when the Assyrians decided to go and conquer a town, the people of the town, many of them, would decide to commit, to commit mass suicide over being experiencing the brutality of the Assyrians. That's how serious the Assyrians were. When the Assyrians conquered you and were taking you back to Nineveh, their capital, they would get everyone in a line. 
And they would put a hook in your mouth and a chain connected you to the person in front of you and to the person behind you. So if the person in front of you or behind you wanted to run away, you had a vested interest in them not running away. Because if they ran away, they were taking your cheek with you. And you're saying, I'd prefer it if you stayed. I mean, it was just absolutely brutal. Absolutely brutal. And so God decides to forgive them. And, and, and the thing that happens is that Jonah is like, no, no, no. Maybe you don't understand, God. Because when God forgives these people, <clears throat> just the thought of Him forgiving them starts to shatter His image of God. Because God, it's like, God, here's the deal. I, Jonah, am the good guy. Those are the bad guys. You've got to do good for us and evil to them. But here's what happened to my people. Evil happened to us, and now you're going to do good to them. And let me tell you something. His mind is exploding because the image that he had of God was not the right one. You see, the God that he had created for himself in his mind was not the God of the Bible. Or maybe to some degree it was. Because the reason he didn't want to go to Nineveh is because he says in chapter 4, I knew it. I knew that you'd be gracious. I knew that you'd be merciful. I knew that you'd be loving to people who aren't worth loving. That's what he's saying. You see, the story of Jonah should have been about a group of people that were incredibly wicked, but the love and grace and mercy of God overcomes all of that, and they turn to him. But instead, the book of Jonah becomes about a guy that knew so much about God, yet what he didn't understand, and he didn't know the depth of God's love. Jesus would say it this way. Last verse in your notes. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You see, what Jonah forgot was that God had shown him grace when he ran from God. And God could have wiped him out and sent someone else. He kept calling him and calling him and calling him and finally brought him back. And it was an act of grace. God was revealing his nature. When God offered the Ninevites grace, he was revealing his nature because grace and mercy and love and forgiveness is who God is. <clears throat> the story of Jonah ends with a question. The question is this. Will you love like God loves? Will you love a group of people that you don't feel deserve it? Not will you create a God in your own image so that He only blesses and forgives the people that you want Him to forgive. But instead, will we let go of our self-righteous religiosity and embrace the Gospel? Let me tell you what the Gospel is. The Gospel is this, that Jonah was no different than the Ninevites. That they had all fallen short of God's standard. To varying degrees, yes. But they were all in need of grace and mercy, and forgiveness. <clears throat> because the same way that God saved Jonah is the same way that God saved the Ninevites. And if, listen, if you're a Christian, it's the same way that God saved you. Not by the work that you've done or how good you've been, but because God sent His Son Jesus into this world to die, to rise again, so that we could experience life and freedom. You see, it all comes back to the statement. What you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And the reason is because it defines who you are. Because we become like who we worship. 
And if you believe in a God that is spiteful and hateful and vindictive, I can promise you you're not becoming more loving. But instead, if you believe in a God that is gracious and merciful and loving and long-suffering with people, guess what? That's what you're becoming like. Because we become like that which we worship. And God wants us to become like Him. That's why the beginning of these commandments, these ten words, starts with this. No other gods but me, God says. Why? Because He wants us to become like Him. And if we've been worshiping another god or our identity or money or stuff or control or preference or whatever, listen, the first step is to recognize it. The second step is to turn from it and and confess it to God and say, God, I need you. I want you. Seventeen times, no less, in the Old Testament, here's here's what happens. God tells the people of Israel... Turn from your idols. Turn from the counterfeit gods that you've been worshiping. And he calls them to embrace him. And you know what happens every single time? They turn from their idols, they embrace God, and the result is blessing. They live and experience the life that they were created to live. That's why it starts with who we worship. Because we can't live the life God wants us to live. We can't live in the freedom God wants us to live if we're worshiping a false god that only seeks to ensnare us. And maybe the reason that you're here this morning is because you haven't even realized that you have been worshiping another god. And if you're saying, I have, and I didn't even know it, then maybe it's it's a moment for us to just get serious with God and say, God, I'm sorry, I'm turning from it, and I'm embracing you. Let's pray together. And God, we do want to thank you for your love, for your grace, for the fact that you just don't let us go, but instead you continue to pursue us. And Lord, for those of us that have turned to worship another God, we've served an idol instead of you. God, I pray, I ask, that as we turn to you, that we would experience your grace, your love, your forgiveness and a renewed sense of relationship with you. That's our prayer. That's our hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.